0: One of the most impressive examples of the glory of God's creation is a mountain. Every time we look at a mountain range, we are struck by its remarkable majesty. John Ruskin once said, Mountains are the beginning and the end of all natural scenery. Yeah, we have a fascination with mountains, don't we? The Scottish-born American naturalist John Muir wrote, The mountains are calling and I must go. Well, the next two Discover the Word podcast group member Bill Crowder is going to lead Marty Hahn and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day on an expedition that will help us to discover the surprising role that mountains play in the story of the Bible. He's going to take us to some of the important and dramatic moments that took place on mountains and reflect with us on why it seems like mountains are places where God chooses to do some of his most profound work. Now, the Gospel in the Mountains begins next on the Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to the Discover the Word podcast, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Great to have you here on the front end of another study the group will be doing together that uh, may have a shaping influence on in how you read the Scriptures and how you live your life as a follower of Christ. Now, As I mentioned, Bill is leading these conversations with Mart and Elisa and Daniel, That will highlight how often mountains are part of the story and message that the Bible is communicating. Over the next two podcasts, Bill has 10 examples that he'll share with us where mountains have a surprisingly prominent role in the story of the Bible. So let's get started. As John Muir said, the mountains are calling and we must go.
1: What do you think about when you think of mountains?
0: Well, I live in Colorado,
2: so I go straight to the Rocky Mountains. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yep, and probably the most majestic mountain I've ever lived near was when I was in Colorado as well, in Colorado Springs, under Pikes Peak. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. We've driven through some of the mountains uh, out toward, you know, east between here and, and the east coast, toward the build between us, Michigan, and the southeast. But I think of mountains yeah. when I think of flying over them, flying from us. Uh, Say from Los Angeles across, mm, and how impressive mm, it is mm. to see it from up above.
4: You use the word impressive, Mar. What are some other words that you would use to describe mountains? I mean, obviously, some are positive, some may be more negative.
2: Purple mountains, majesty. So think of that. <laughs> majesty, immediately.
1: yeah.
4: Uh,
5: mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, majestic, might, power. Oftentimes, mountains come with some of those big words, big meaningful words. I'm
3: probably on a different page. I think of driving them in the snow. I think danger in the mountains. Yeah. Icy mm-hmm. roads. I see. Yeah. I grew up in West Virginia, which is their motto
4: is the mountain state. Even though the mountains in West Virginia are dwarfed by the ones in Colorado. But I think about labor and the labor that it took to build Mm. roads Mm. to get through those mountains a lot of hard work was done to build those roads and different things so when we think about mountains there are a lot of amazing things there are a lot of wonderful things there are also some occasionally scary things interestingly the bible has kind of a love-hate relationship with mountains.
1: Anybody have any ideas what the hate part might be? Well, the high places where the false gods were often worshipped is yeah. the first thing that comes to mind for me. Yeah.
4: So many times in the southern kingdom when a, a good king would come in, they would tear down the high places to pull the people back to worshipping the one true God. And yet at the same time, it's amazing when you stop and think about it, how many really important moments in the Bible take place on mountains. Mm-hmm. As I was going through the scriptures, I landed on 10 different places where something really important happens on a mountain. And in one way or another, it always feeds into the larger story of the Bible, which is God's love and rescue. I think it's kind of an interesting thing. And I hope you'll think it's interesting too. I hope it's not. (laughs) Well, the first one we're going to look at is actually, I think, a mountain that. And I'm not speaking allegorically. We know allegorical interpretation of scriptures has a lot of danger in it. Mm -hmm. And that's trying to make the Bible say more than it's intended to say. But I do think that there are interesting ways that we can see in these events on these mountains, things that do point us forward to Jesus. And I think this first one that we're going to see does that in a very, very clear way, at least to me. And that is, interestingly enough, Mount Ararat. Mm-hmm. Now, what do we know about Mount Ararat? That
2: had to do with the flood, did it not?
4: The great flood under Noah?
1: Mm-hmm. That's where the ark rested, I think, right? When right. it was finished. Mm-hmm. So for
4: folks who aren't familiar with that story, what led up to the flood and then the ark? And then we'll kind of pick it up from there.
3: Terribly dark period of history. Yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah,
2: and one of the ways you talk about it, Daniel, is that we can choose to walk in God's way, or we can choose to walk not in God's way, in God's path, you know, and this is way early in the history of the created humans. Mm-hmm. In the first six chapters mm-hmm. of the book of Genesis, by then, people are wayward. They're not walking, or they're walking not in God's paths.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's kind of mm-hmm. the crescendo of that, right? Because we see a first broken decision by Adam and Eve, then we see a much what feels like much more broken decision by Cain and Abel, where Cain kills Abel, and then we yeah. see Lamech, and then it just keeps crescendoing Escalating. to this mm-hmm. yeah, moment of evil.
3: Do we have a sense of the time period in which that inclination played out?
4: Well, scholars really wrestle with that pretty hard, Mark, because the numbers of years that people were recorded as living in those days are so far beyond our scope of understanding. Mm -hmm. But it would have been thousands of years according to that, and yet a fairly short period of time compared to what's happened in the time since the flood. Mm -hmm. And I think in that relative sense, it really didn't take the human race very long to go completely off the rails. And because God is a god of righteousness Mm. there was so much wrong in the world he responded with an act of judgment Mm. which was the flood that you mentioned and i know a lot of people struggle with the idea of the flood and the lives that were lost and things of that nature and i don't want to downplay that we can't afford to can we
3: because it's very difficult to accept
4: it's hard to understand and yet at the same time because of who we believe god is based on what we're given to know of him We can't assign wrong to him, but at the same time, it's hard for us to always understand how some of those things can ever be right.
3: Yeah, what we do know is that it put to an end a lot of pain and suffering.
4: That's right. I had a prof in Bible college one time who said, even God's acts of judgment are ultimately acts of mercy, Mm. that even in Mm. what seems like a horrific act, there's a merciful component to it. So the flood begins, the ark is lifted from the ground that Noah has built, it floats on the water, and then in Genesis chapter 8, it lands on Ararat. And I'd like for us, if we could, just to read verses 1 through 4 of Genesis chapter 8, because there's a really important key moment before they actually get to Ararat. So Elisa, you want to start us off in verse 1, and then we'll just read around through verse 4.
5: Okay.
2: Genesis 8 verse 1 but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters
1: receded
3: the underground waters stopped flowing and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped
1: and the waters gradually receded from the earth and at the end of 150 days the waters had abated
4: and in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month the ark rested Upon the mountains of Ararat, I think this is really interesting because of the very first phrase that Elisa read. What was that first phrase again?
2: Mm, but God remembered Noah. I hear that mercy we were talking about there. and then we know that Noah was God's instrument here, but you hear that mercy echo, don't you?
4: Well, and I think that's really important. Not only did he remember Noah, he remembered all the animals. I mean, we Mm -hmm. talk a lot today about issues of creation care and that we have been given stewardship over this planet and the creatures that are on it. And I think as you look at all of that, God not only remembered Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, he also remembered the other living creatures that he had preserved and rescued through this flood. And that remembering... I think is a really important statement as to God's
3: working to accomplish his purposes on the other end of the flood. And yet it sounds so strange, Bill. I mean, I look at it anything, it's hard to believe we're reading what we are, but God remembered. Yeah. Uh, how could God forget? It sounds really strange.
4: Absolutely. And I'm glad you went there because I think this is what's called an anthropopathism. <laughs> uh, we talk sometimes about anthropomorphisms <laughs> where the God who is spirit is described in physical terms like the hand of the Lord or the eyes of the Lord in order for us to be able to comprehend something about him. Here, I think it's an anthropopathism. We're being given something that God feels hmm. as opposed to uh, something that's physical. But he's being described in human terms to help us understand him coming back into the story this okay. way, if that helps any. Okay.
2: And I don't want to derail us, but isn't there, too, the idea that he's intentionally thinking mm-hmm. about, not that he forgot, mm-hmm. but that right. he's intentionally bringing him to yeah, mind? that's mm-hmm. exactly right. And
1: it's an idea that we see repeated. God remembers his promises to Abraham. He remembers his yeah. promises to Israel. So it's it's kind of this drawing attention to the fact that God doesn't forget what he starts or what he initiates.
3: That's really the point, isn't it? That Mm -hmm. he doesn't forget. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think what's cool is oftentimes God's remembering always leads to something too. It's not like us where we might remember what we should do, but then still not do it. Mm -hmm. God always remembers, and then we see some kind of action on the part of God. So here, God remembered, And then he made a wind to blow over the earth and started pushing back the waters. And so Mm -hmm. we see that, that rhythm Mm -hmm. of remembering and then doing.
4: I think it's really good, Daniel. And I think, you know, earlier in our conversation, I mentioned the fact that to me, as I look at these mountains, they all ultimately feed into the larger story of the Bible that God comes to rescue us and to bring us home. And here where I see that is in a sense on the other side of the flood After the flood is gone, as human life restarts, in a sense, it's humanity 2.0. They're rebooting (laughs) the human race on Mount Ararat. This is God giving humanity a fresh start. Hmm. Even in its earliest beginnings, the human race found a way to go to places that God never intended us to go and to become something he never intended us to become, but on Mount Ararat... God gave humanity a fresh start. God gave humanity a new beginning. And what we know as we read forward in the scriptures is that there are gonna be an awful lot of times when new beginnings are needed to respond to situations in those moments in time. But what we know is that God is a God who loves, God is a God who forgives, and God is a God who meets us where we are and offers us new beginnings when we need them.
0: That is mountain number one in our series called The Gospel in the Mountains, Mount Ararat. And now mountain number two, Mount Moriah.
4: What are some of the promises that we can be given throughout life? What are some things that
1: can be promised to us? My wife and I made a lot of vows at our wedding, and those are promises mm-hmm. to love, to cherish, to care for one another. mm
3: mm-hmm. I think of individuals who accept responsibilities in government and the the oath of office Mm. that they often have Mm. to uh, agree to. Mm -hmm. Sure.
2: I think of a lot of times when maybe my kids promised me that they (laughs) could be trusted and it didn't work out so great. And then I look back and I had made similar promises to my parents growing up that I didn't keep. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Yeah.
4: Yeah, I feel your pain, Elisa. (laughs) A very different kind of promise and one that I think many times we probably, and appropriately so, I think, view with some skepticism would be advertising claims. Mm -hmm. Ah. Advertising makes promises. Can I trust those promises? I don't know. Sure. When somebody's making a promise to us, what gives you a sense of whether you can trust that promise or not?
2: Well, I think of two things. One is their character And the other is the relationship we have with each other. Mm -hmm. So if I know them closely, intimately even, and I know their character to be proven and dependable and have integrity, then that makes a huge difference.
3: Yeah, the reputation. We might call it a brand, but the brand has a reputation, Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. makes a huge
1: Mm -hmm. difference. And might we say too, the context where the promise is given, Yeah. you know, sometimes marketing promises are given in a, in a context that feels fake as if they're overpromising or whatever. And you kind of get that awareness that really they just want to sell you something, mm-hmm. but the context mm-hmm. of a, a wedding brings us more seriousness mm-hmm. to promise giving or the promise of an employer and employee. These are the expectations we have. These are mm-hmm. the expectations you have. That context can matter. Yeah.
4: And I think we also understand that even in the best of circumstances, like wedding vows, there are people who make promises that they then don't live up to That's right. eventually. And there's heartache and there's pain from that. And we don't want to ignore that either. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, to me at least, I'm echoing what Elisa said, that I think what makes the difference on whether I trust a promise or not is how I view the trustworthiness of the person making that promise. mm mm-hmm. And that, oddly enough, brings us back to our conversations about mountains in the Bible, (laughs) because we want to look at a mountain today that even though the word promise is not used, I think that there is a very subtle promise being made there, and it's being made by God. And as God makes this promise— he wants us to trust him because he's trustworthy. So Daniel, would you read Genesis 22 verses 1 and 2, please? And, and right out of the chute, we're going to get something that's a little bit hard to process.
1: So let's live with it for a minute. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Whoa. Okay, I have four sons. Mm -hmm.
4: And so I really struggle with this text because in my heart, I have a pretty good idea how I would respond if God came to me and told me to do that with one of my sons. Mm -hmm. And it probably would not be to obey him.
3: Right, Mm -hmm. right.
4: I don't know how to categorize the emotions that ride along with a text like that. Well, it
3: goes against all the categories we have in understanding of what it means to love a child. And there's a part of me that says, Bill, let's not even go there. You know, Mm -hmm. so many people have struggled with this. It sounds so pagan. Barbaric. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Terrible. This is not uncommon, though, in this context or culture. It's what people would expect of a god a god to require child sacrifice. That's what all the other gods did. So Mm -hmm. absolutely, this goes against everything that we feel. And I would say it, it feels wrong in every way. But at the same time, the context here is very different from like our Western culture, where we have a different perspective. So
3: Daniel, are you saying that Abraham would not have experienced the same emotion that we're alluding to?
1: I think Abraham would have absolutely experienced the emotions, but his emotions would be within the context of, oh, I guess this God that I follow is like the other gods, if that makes sense.
2: Which is heartbreaking in that too, you know, because supposedly he's different and he's made promises to
4: Abraham. Mm -hmm. As I think about that, and I react with what even Mart said when he first reacted very strongly, mm-hmm. and he said, this goes against everything we think about loving a child and caring for a child, but it also goes against everything we think about the heart of God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the command shocks us because of the command, but there's a sense in which it should also shock us because who it's coming from. Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Who it's coming from is, is a God that we have come to believe would never do something like this. So what do we do when we run into something like that in the scripture? And what I do when I run into something like that is I start off with the assumption that there's more going on here than the text is telling me. Mm. Mm. Because I start off with the presupposition that God's smarter than me (laughs) and uh, he's gonna do what's right even if I don't understand how it's happening. Mm now that may be naive that may be unsophisticated that might be simplistic but to me that's the only way i can approach a thing like this is just to assume
3: okay there's more here than i know mm. you know bill when you say that it hits me as well that that's you know that's a good thought for all of us in the present to mm-hmm. have that same kind of thought i know you're reaching mm-hmm. way back and helping us to understand the background of something that happened thousands of years ago, but what you're saying is something we need to keep in mind today.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we would like to know, mm. but at some level it tells us what we need to know. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those situations where there's a whole lot about this that I would like to know more mm. to help me process it, but this is what I've been given, and so I assume that the person who's making this instruction is worthy of my trust. Therefore, there's more going on than I know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back to the point of trust again. So Elisa, would you pick up in verse three and read verses three and four?
2: Sure. And we're back in Genesis 22. Verse three, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day... Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance.
4: So he obeyed. Yeah. But then we come to verse 5, and here's where I think we get a hint as to more going on
3: behind the scenes. Mark, could you read verse 5 for us? Okay. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servant. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We'll worship there, and then we will come right back. <laughs> Uh, Who will come right back?
4: We. we, I heard that. We will come right back. powerful. We will come right back. Abraham believes that God's got more in mind than him just sacrificing Isaac.
3: Mm.
4: Abraham is convinced that there's more happening here. And later in the story, as they're making their way up the hill and Isaac says, we've got the wood and we've got the fire, where's the sacrifice? Mm. (laughs) And Abraham makes that extraordinary statement of faith. God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes. You talk about faith, and you talk about Mm. trusting someone who has made promises to you. God had made promises to Abraham that were rooted in Isaac.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: And he is trusting that God is going to stand by those promises. And he trusts him all the way up to Mount Moriah. And there, as we know, he binds Isaac, he lays him on the wood, and then he hears a ram in the thicket, and God has, in fact, provided mm-hmm. for the sacrifice, and the boy and Abraham return together. Mm-hmm. It's a marvelous turn in the story, but what I'm so hooked by is the trust in maybe the most unbelievably difficult moment in his life mm-hmm. the trust that Abraham has in his God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, Bill, i would just been going through this very application, and I hadn't connected it to Abraham this way, so thank you so much for this focus on Mount Moriah, where God provides. But I was in a devotional reading, and I've been struggling with trusting God, I'm just being honest here, with a grandson and something he's going through and how much I love him and et cetera. And the devotional started out with these words as if it's speaking from God to me, I'm going to ask you to do a new thing. Every day, I want to ask you to say, I trust you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as if it's God to me. And I've been really trying to do that. Mm -hmm. As I open my mouth to pray, I'm starting with, I trust Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And then I pray. It's changing exactly what you're talking about, Bill, because I'm looking at the character of God. I'm looking at who he has been throughout my life, throughout scripture, his promises. And it's changing me.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge part of this story too, is it's not just a story about Abraham and Abraham's faith, but it's also a story about God. Mm -hmm. And that really uncomfortable beginning of this program (laughs) where we were talking about (laughs) God's request of Abraham and how in that culture that would be expected, that a God would require the sacrifice of a child. I think one of the main reasons this story is in the Bible is because it tells that actually the God of the Bible is not like all the other gods. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of this chapter, you think he is. By the end of the chapter, you realize, no, God doesn't require human sacrifice. He doesn't Mm -hmm. require Mm -hmm. the children to be sacrificed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an important story about who God is that this story is pushing us toward, is this is another one of those examples of God's not like all the other gods. Mm -hmm. He cares deeply about those that follow him.
3: And don't you get the sense too, Daniel, that it's that same God who must have given Abraham that faith? Yeah, that's right. And Elisa, as you Mm -hmm. talked about, God must be involved in your life right now, Mm -hmm. giving you this opportunity and the grace to -hmm. trust him. Mm
2: And to grow, and we see it, and Bill, I know you're going to direct us to it. This is what God provides for in providing his own son as the sacrifice for us. This is a story that he's going to continue to provide for us to demonstrate that he is different, as you said, Daniel, from all the other gods. He himself
4: will make the way for us. And as we walk away from Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac and his two servants, I hear the voice of God echoing from the mountain, saying, this is who I am. You can trust me. Mm-hmm. And that's good news in a day when we need someone we can trust.
0: Yeah, and an interesting side note, Mount Moriah is mentioned another time in the Bible. In Second Chronicles chapter 3, it says that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Yeah, the story of the Bible and how God provides and how we can trust him Again runs through Mount Moriah. Well, the Gospel in the Mountains is our series right now here on Discover the Word, and what happened at the next mountain we'll go to has had an impact on every person's life, including ours today, ever since. Find out which mountain that is in 60 seconds. Even though we will make ten stops at different mountains in these two podcasts we still won't have time to cover all the important mountaintop moments in scripture. For example, we won't talk about the dramatic battle that took place at Mount Tabor. But that doesn't mean you can't discover what took place there by watching an episode from the Our Daily Bread Films documentary, Holy Land, with Dr. Jack Beck. We're going up to about 1800 feet above sea level. That's a good 1800 feet of climbing. This, this climb up Mount Tabor just feels like the story told in the book of Judges. Yeah, Jack does such a great job of telling that story. And you can watch that episode for free when you visit discovertheword.org or find it on the Our Daily Bread Ministries YouTube channel. And now, mountain number three in our series, The Gospel in the Mountains, Mount Sinai. Okay, personal question.
4: You don't have to answer, but if you don't answer, it'll probably be an answer.
1: (laughs) Have you ever been on the wrong side of the law? Mm. Sure. I've heard of people that have.
3: (laughs) You know what? Any of us that have a license in driving a
1: car. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I know a guy one time that was driving too fast from his girlfriend's house, who's now his wife, and may have gotten pulled over. It was a friend, though. May
2: have. Yeah, yeah, just a friend, maybe. <sighs> just, yeah. But, you know, I, there are more serious moments um, where someone has been on the wrong side mm-hmm. of the law, and we've been in court, even other consequences. It's a very humbling moment. And I've gone into prisons for ministry mm-hmm. and have been deeply humbled as the doors closed behind me and clank shut with the lock turned and just am so aware of the rights that mm. one is asked to give up when we're on the wrong side of the law
3: yeah i'm glad you're going there elisa because joking about driving a car that's so light uh-huh. and yet all of us have had connections that are much darker
4: yeah and i think you know Everything that you guys are saying is really spot on to the issue because, yes, there are some light things that are on the wrong side of the law, and we make light of them because we say, well, it's not as bad as what somebody else did, you know, and we try to excuse ourselves with those kinds of things. And yet, in the eyes of the law, you break the law, you've broken the law, it doesn't matter how badly you've broken it, and it puts you in a position where, yes, liberties are lost. Uh, Rights are lost. Relationships can be lost. Mm -hmm. There's a huge and heavy price paid when we break the law. And that's true in the living of life as citizens. But I think The Bible has some things to say about that, too. And as we're seeing uh, with so many of these important moments in the scriptures, it has to do with a mountain. And that mountain, as many of you are probably already there mentally, is Mount Sinai and the giving of the law of Moses. So let's go there and let's think about the law of Moses that was given on the mountain. And I want us to think about it in terms of the fact that when it comes to the law of Moses, all of us are on the wrong side of the law. Mm. Mm. Mark, would you start us off by reading Exodus 19, verses 1 and 2? Okay,
3: it starts exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt. They arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. And after breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai.
4: Okay. God has rescued Israel out of Egypt, where they've been enslaved for 400 years they've come on the very beginning of their journey it's going to be a much longer journey than any of them imagine as we know uh, but there's some important things that are going to happen here on the mountain and the first is that god is going to give moses a law by which the people are going to be expected to live when we think about that what do we instantly think of the 10 commandments Sure. And really, the Ten Commandments are just kind of the preamble. Mm -hmm. The law goes into ceremonial things. It goes into uh, relational living things. One of the reasons for that is because at Mount Sinai, Israel is going to shift from being this giant extended family into becoming a nation. And it's here at Sinai where they're a nation. A nation is governed by laws that they're going to be expected to live within. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like a constitution almost? Yeah. And the Ten Commandments become the preamble of that constitution. But there's something else that happens here. And this is where we really get to the rub of all of us being on the wrong side of the law. Mm -hmm. Because the law as it was given was a law that could never be fulfilled. Now, what's really interesting... Elisa, after a discussion among the people with Moses about the law that God was giving to them, I want you to read Exodus 24, verse 3, and tell us what that said.
2: When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Okay.
1: At that point, Bill, they would have disagreed with what you just said, right? You're saying that they couldn't keep it, but at this point in In history, they're receiving this, and it sounds like they're rejoicing in it and saying, yes, we'll do all of it.
3: Bill, at what point did they say that? Was it after the 10 or was it after the whole, the whole body? It was
4: after the 10 and some more. Okay. Uh, The whole thing had not been given yet, but it was after the 10 completely, and then some other things were brought as well. I think the very best thing we can say about their response is that they have good intentions. Uh reality and intentions don't always travel the same roads and i think that we find that to be true hundreds of years later in acts chapter 15 now at this point jesus has come he has died he has risen he has ascended the holy spirit's come the church has been born and now as we get into acts chapter 15 the church has a problem and that's that there are gentiles who are coming to jesus and being brought into the church and some of the Jewish believers are saying, well, if they're going to really be Christians, they have to keep the law of Moses. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Peter says, now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Hmm. What they were trying to do was enslave these new Gentile believers to the law that they never could have kept to begin with and didn't. Hmm. And that was the problem that they faced. There's this law that has been given. And it was a law that they did not, and in fact, could not keep.
3: It really cuts to the chase, doesn't it? Mm -hmm,
5: mm -hmm.
4: Yeah. So the question is then, why did God give them a law he knew they couldn't keep?
1: Yeah. And I guess I'm, even before that, Bill, I'm kind of stuck on the, why can't they keep it? I mean, it's all written down. Here's all the rules. Like, could you not have the list and keep it. What is it that within us as humans or or within Israel as they're trying to keep these laws that kept them mm-hmm. from being able to keep them? Because it seems pretty straightforward. Here's a few hundred rules. Just follow the rules. <laughs> you're cracking
2: yeah. me up because I'm looking at your face and you you have this kind of tongue in cheek as you're asking this question. But it is a, a question we should think about.
4: It's a legitimate question to be asked But I think, at least to me, Daniel, and I think probably to you as well, the answer is fairly obvious, and that's because we're broken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talk about there's only a few hundred of these things. Well, Adam and Eve (laughs) were only given one. Yeah. (laughs) How long did that last? Well, we don't know, but apparently not very long. I mean, we are not good at obeying law. We are not good at keeping rules, and we are not good at living up to what is best in us we tend to travel to the easier path, and the easier path oftentimes is not the best path. Mm -hmm. And this goes to the point, Mart, of your statement that led into the question, why was the law given? And I think one way I heard it put was that the law was given to teach. It was a teaching tool to teach the people to choose God's way as opposed to other ways. But we constantly choose other ways because of our flesh. We constantly choose other ways because of our emotions. We constantly choose other ways because of our relationships. We constantly choose other ways, and that puts us in violation with a lot of these things that God gave. So to go to
2: the gut question, why would God give an impossible law? And I'm hearing you say that because God would give an impossible law to reveal our need for Him in a different way. If we didn't have that law, we might never recognize our great need for Him.
3: But it also gives, even before that, at least, doesn't it, a vision for a well ordered community? To desire that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if only we could live that way without our self centeredness and really with the desire to do unto our neighbor as we would want our neighbor to do unto us. It's an uplifting vision. It is higher ground, and it's
4: higher ground that is worth aspiring to, but it's also higher ground that in our flesh we're incapable of. And I think that's why, Daniel, I'd like for you to read John 1, verse 17. This is in John's theological prologue of his
1: gospel record of the life and work of Jesus. John 1, 17. And to our point of struggling to keep laws, this is very encouraging. (laughs) John 1, (laughs) 17, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ.
4: You see the point of contrast there? The law was given by Moses. It was given for a reason. Jesus said the law is not evil. The law is not bad. The law, in a sense, exposes what's bad in us. Mm. But to counteract that, grace and truth have come. (laughs) And grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Christmas story this way in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. But as Elisa said, we would have never understood that if he had not given us a law that was beyond our grasp.
3: And isn't it true That in the light of that, when we realize how forgiving and merciful God is, and really when we realize that we are loved by God, that begins to make it easier to love others and to live within the spirit of those principles.
2: Right.
0: And that is mountain number three, Mount Sinai, where God gave Israel the law. And now mountain number four, maybe the least known mountain in this series, Mount Nebo.
4: One of life's great inevitabilities is that we make choices and there are consequences to those choices. Do you have any personal examples that you would feel free to share? And it doesn't have to be a bad consequence, it can be a good consequence because sometimes they are good.
2: Well, I think immediately of a choice to move from Texas to Colorado to attend seminary. And as a result, I ended up meeting my husband who came to seminary from Wyoming. We never would have met, I don't think, in Texas, you know.
3: It's hard to answer, Bill, because all of life is, in a sense, a consequence of prior decisions.
2: Mm -hmm,
4: Good way to put it. Yeah. Somebody said, good choices are the fruit of experience, and experience is the fruit of bad choices.
1: Daniel, what do you have? I think why I'm struggling to answer is because I'm thinking of very silly, Things like <laughs> making a decision to eat because I'm hungry and then I'm full, right? So, like, it's like a <laughs> completely <laughs> insignificant. But again, to Mart's point, so much of life are these little decisions that we make mm-hmm. that have good consequences or bad consequences. And sometimes those are big decisions, like times I've uh, decided to take a job or said no to an opportunity, and that's had consequences, both good and bad. Uh, mm-hmm. But then every day is full of these small little decisions that have Mm -hmm. consequences as well.
3: Brian, don't you remember Haddon Robinson? He used to sit at the table here and and say, you know, we make our decisions, and then our decisions turn around and make us. Great line. (laughs) So
2: Haddon, yeah.
4: Yeah. (laughs) That's good. You know, I think back to when I was in the 10th grade, and I disobeyed my mom, which is never a good way to begin a story. (laughs) And I went to play football (laughs) with my friends. I ended up breaking one of my front teeth, and that set me on a path of... Forty years of dental issues, and thousands of dollars spent, uh, all because of one knucklehead decision that I made. And I think of uh, Roy Hobbs in the movie The Natural when he ends up in a bad place, and his high school girlfriend said, "Roy, what happened to you?" And he said, "Some mistakes you never stop paying for." Mm. <laughs> and that's kind of the way I felt about that broken tooth. Some mistakes mm. you never stop paying for. It <laughs> seems like, and and to Haddon's point, yeah. We make our choices and our choices make us. And that's exactly where we want to go today as we go to yet another mountain. And in this, what we see is just a reminder that choices have consequences. And we see it expressed in the life of one of the great iconic characters in the scripture. And that's Moses. And he's going to face his consequences at a place called Mount Nebo which is probably the least well-known of all the mountains we'll look at during these two weeks' time. So <laughs> it's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. What do we know about the book of Deuteronomy?
3: It's the rehearsing of the law, isn't it, on the, mm-hmm. on the east side of the Jordan River before the nation crossed it.
1: Yeah, it's where the, the passing of leadership happens between Moses and Joshua. And like you said, Mart, they're remembering all of the expectations that they said yes to, in a previous conversation that
4: we had. And actually, Daniel, it wasn't them who had made that. The people who made that initial agreement at Mount Sinai that we saw in yesterday's conversation, they've all died in the wilderness. Forty years have passed since Mount Sinai, and now there's a new generation. And, Mark, you described this as a retelling of the law. It's a retelling of the law to reaffirm the covenant. Hmm. This new generation needs to reaffirm their agreement to live as God's covenant people. And so Moses rehearses the law with them so that they can respond as their ancestors had before them, that, yes, we will be the covenant people. We will agree to this mm. contract, if you will, that was a part of the law. So he gives all of that information to them. He repeats them. Now it's time for the people of Israel who have been led out of Egypt led through the wilderness, led to the Jordan River to be led into the promised land. But Moses doesn't get to go. In one of the most bittersweet, I think, moments Mm -hmm. of the Old Testament, the great leader who's lived his entire adult life almost looking forward to the promised land is excluded. And what do we know about why he was excluded?
3: He got kept out on a technicality. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's always bothered me. It's, yeah. it's just really
1: bad.
4: It's bothered me
2: too. I yeah. feel the same yeah.
1: way, Mark, because every time I think about and read that story of Moses, who's supposed to speak to this rock and provide water for Israel when they don't have any, and he hits it instead because he's frustrated with these grumpy people. like It feels like such a harsh consequence for yeah. something yeah. so silly or simple, and is at least how it, I see it
3: yeah, for a God who is supposed to be so patient, yeah you know?
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: and here's all these years, these decades mm-hmm. and decades yeah. Yeah. that yeah. Moses has suffered, and it, it's stunning to me,
3: yeah,
4: first of all, the term you were looking for, Daniel, is that in your judgment, the punishment does not fit the crime, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which is the jargon that I think we would use today and and I think it's easy for us to look at that and say that. I think it's also important for us to look back through the scriptures and realize that that wasn't the first rash decision that (laughs) Moses had ever made that exacted a cost. Well, then
2: there's that. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
4: He does have a bit of a track record uh, that uh, even though Moses was the great leader, he also had some anger management issues that created problems from time to time. And I think, especially when there's a pattern of problems, accountability becomes all the more important Hmm. in order to try to deal with those things. And I'll just add one more thing. And then, Mart, you're looking rather skeptical at me. I'll let you jump in and respond to me. Well, let me
3: just say, the reason I'm looking at skeptical, I say, good night. The man's 120 years old. Yeah. you know He should know better. he's, he, <laughs> no, but he's had his day. I'm in the nation. They need some new blood. They need some new leadership. Yeah. They need new vision. And they're about to get it.
4: They're about to get their new leadership. And we're talking about technicalities. Mm-hmm. But we're also talking about A reality where the scriptures tell us that to whom much is given, much will be required. Mm. Mm. Much has been given to Moses. Much has been entrusted to him. Much responsibility. He, as the leader of Israel, has a responsibility of setting an example for the people to follow. And when he responds to God with anger, it's not just hitting the rock. It's his response to God. Mm that sets an example before a people that has been entrusted to his shepherding care. And, and I think when you look at that, all of a sudden, it's not just that he hit the rock, it's all of a sudden in the eyes of the people, their leader is now questioning God mm-hmm. and his character.
1: And that's a much bigger issue. The only other thing that makes me also feel a little better is when I think of all of Moses' life. He had more intimate interactions with God than anyone ever, at least as the scriptures describe it. And so to think that, yes, he didn't get to go in the promised land, but the gracious, kind, and loving God that he served was a God who allowed Moses in his presence, Mm -hmm. even with the brokenness that Moses brought with him. And so there is this reality, although Moses may have not been able to step into the promised land because of some of what you're describing, Bill, it didn't change God's love and care for Moses or the relationship that God had built with Moses hmm. because God was still very much present with Moses, especially in the sections that we're talking about True. right here.
4: Yeah.
2: And maybe we can even go a little bit further, Daniel, because you're helping me see this in a different way than I typically do because I get stuck on the punishment for the crime. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land, but he died on Mount Nebo and we know that he went to the heart of God. Yeah. And so maybe we make too much in a way
5: mm-hmm.
2: of the entrance into the promised land because he did go to the promised destination of God's heart.
3: I think that's really important at least he went to the to the eternal God.
4: Yeah. And I think the fact that in spite of Moses' issues, and in some ways, Moses is kind of like Peter. He's very rash. He has a, a tendency to overreact and over respond. And yet look how tenderly Jesus dealt with Peter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here we see God, yeah, in Deuteronomy, in the text in thirty-two forty-nine, God says, go up on Mount Nebo and, and you're going to die there. But it's almost like, it's okay,
5: mm-hmm.
4: because that's not the end of your story. And in fact, what we know from the new testament and we'll see on another mountain next week that moses does enter the promised land he enters it on the mount of transfiguration where he and elijah <laughs> visit no. with jesus mm-hmm. and god's grace finds full circle as he wasn't able to go in this life but in a much
0: richer way
4: he did find entrance into that land of promise
0: and Mount Nebo is not the end of this story. And the conversation that Bill just referenced is coming up in part two of this podcast. So make plans to be part of that fascinating look at what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration and how it's related to what happened here on Mount Nebo. Well, there will be five more mountains the group will go to in part two of this series, The Gospel in the Mountains. As we continue to explore the surprisingly prominent role mountains have in how the story of the Bible is told. And so now let's finish part one by going to the amount often associated with the most frequently mentioned place in the Bible. Jerusalem is the most often mentioned place in the Bible, a place that is center stage to the unfolding message of rescue and redemption that the Bible is telling. And so let's listen as Bill leads Mart and Elisa and Daniel in reviewing some of the mountains we've already visited and then takes us to Mount Zion.
4: We've been looking at uh, what I think is an amazing number of really important events in the Scriptures that all happen to take place on mountains. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, what are some of the things we've seen so far? Well, we
2: looked at Mount Ararat, the mountain where the ark came to rest Mm -hmm. after the Mm -hmm. flood. And we looked at how on that mountain, God gave... A second chance and he's given a second chance as many times since hasn't he
3: yeah so that we can know him now as a, a god of new beginnings which is yeah. important mm-hmm. for all of
1: us we also talked about mount moriah which is a pretty uncomfortable conversation about the story <laughs> where god differentiates himself from all other gods by requesting that abraham sacrifice isaac but there's this underlying current of just trust me just trust me and um, ends up rescuing Isaac by providing a ram and showing that he's not like all the other gods that might require a child sacrifice.
3: And I really appreciated that conversation because, Bill, as we worked through it, I think I heard better than I've ever heard before your emphasis on Abraham saying to the servant, the boy and I will go, and we will return. And so the kind mm-hmm. of things, the stuff that we struggle with, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of what is God asking of him, it's kind of like, yeah, but in the middle of all of that, God had given Abraham a confidence in him, yeah. a trust in him. And
4: just like we can have confidence in God for those fresh beginnings, we can have trust in God that even when things are happening in life that we don't understand, We can trust him in the midst of it. Um, We saw Mount Sinai, Mm -hmm. and that was another one that had a little bit of discomfort to it because we're talking about God giving to Israel a law that they couldn't keep to remind us how much we needed him Mm -hmm. and how Jesus came to resolve that issue on our behalf.
3: And also in their lifetime, it gave them order. It gave them a vision for life that was not simply self-centered. That's right. And then what did we
4: see yesterday? Yesterday,
2: we looked at Moses on Mount Nebo, and uh, we struggled with consequences for his disobedience that seemed way out of line, way too severe for his disobedience. And we struggled with God not allowing him to go into the promised land, and yet we saw that he was able to go into God's heart at death. Mm -hmm. And you kind Mm -hmm. of foreshadowed for us, Bill, that we'll see him go to the promised land on a different mountain in the New Testament. So
5: yeah.
4: But after seeing several mountains, we're going to now come to a city that was also built on several mountains, and we're going to look at one in particular, and that's in Mount Zion, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. We'll talk about it a little more in detail, but uh, Daniel, if you'll just read Second Samuel 5 verse 7, that'll kick us off.
1: Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David.
4: Okay, that's a very brief kickstart to a conversation about Mount Zion.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, there's
3: not much there, Bill.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, but we get to fill in the blanks a little bit. And uh, one of the ways we get to fill in the blanks is by setting the background. Before David came along, it was Jebus, uh, the headquarters of the Jebusite people. And now, uh, as he's coming into his role as king— over the tribes of Israel, David is wanting a a headquarters for his kingdom, and he's looking for a place that can offer him a bunch of different things. What are some of the things he wants this
3: place to provide for him and his people? He needed high ground that was defensible, Mm -hmm. and it's referred to as a fortress, right? Which makes sense. Yeah.
4: Jebus would become Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is considered the highest elevation in uh, the lower part of israel and that's why when people would go to the feast time they would say we are going up to jerusalem they were talking literally of the elevation and Mm -hmm. we've talked about it before even today when jews make pilgrimages to israel they call it aliyah they're making aliyah they're going up Mm. they're going to the high ground that david captured when he captured zion which would become jerusalem And David is kind of a mixed bag in the scriptures. We Mm -hmm. know he's a pretty complex character who has a lot of issues, but he also has a lot of good aspirations, doesn't he? What are some of those good aspirations that we see woven through his story?
2: He wants to be a godly leader over his people. He Mm -hmm. takes his charge very seriously. And, you know, Scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. Mm -hmm. And we see him disobey, you know, hugely and severely. But we also see him repent and invite God close. And just a a true intimacy, I guess, is the way he expresses Mm -hmm. his love for God, especially in the Mm
3: -hmm. Psalms. He steps up heroically, really, in behalf of his nation as well, right?
2: Mm Mm-hmm all the way from Goliath to the future, you bet. Yeah,
4: Yeah, I think it's easy for us to over-idealize David. I think Mm -hmm. it's also easy to kind of vilify him, because he does have some pretty dark moments. And I think, like all of us, we wouldn't want our whole life defined by our worst moment. (laughs) At the same time, his moments in which we idealize him are probably not the whole story either. So it's good to keep this complex figure in balance for who he really was. But as you say, a man after God's heart. And that tells us that his aspirations were good, even if his follow through didn't always live up to those aspirations. And now he has led his people to a place where not only he will reign over the people and he will rule over the people, but where he anticipates his descendants will do that Mm -hmm. as well. This is a new home for the nation. Mm -hmm. And he has big plans for that home,
1: doesn't he, Daniel? Yeah. At one point, he wants to build the temple. And the prophet at the time says, yeah, go for it. And then after spending some time in prayer that night, the prophet comes back and says, actually, don't. (laughs) That's not for you to do. (laughs) That's going to be Solomon's job. And so he does. He has some huge aspirations for that area.
4: And what's interesting about that, uh, Daniel, is that we talked about the fact that we've seen a bunch of hills and mountains to this point, And now we come to a city, Jerusalem, that's built on a bunch of hills, one of which was technically called Mount Zion, even though over time that kind of became the title for the whole area. Hmm. It was Mount Zion. But one of the other mountains that made up Jerusalem, was one that we saw in our conversation about Abraham and Isaac. It was Mount Moriah. Hmm. And we find in Second Chronicles that when Solomon does build the temple, he builds it on that very space where sacrifice was not needed, hmm. uh, in a sense, back in Genesis 22. With
2: Abraham. Uh-huh. With
4: Abraham, but there the temple sacrifices would be offered. So this becomes a really important consolidation of the nation around this important place.
3: And the nation's story as well, right? Yeah, Yeah.
4: and not only in the nation's story, but in the Bible story, because this Jerusalem is not the only Jerusalem. We know that there is going to be a day where there will be a new Jerusalem that is pictured by this Jerusalem, and what the two have in common is no matter who the human king who was ruling over Jerusalem might have been, the Bible makes it clear that it is God himself who reigns in the hard times and in the good times, in the easy times, and in the bad times. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. What's the good news? Mm. He announces peace and brings good news of happiness because he announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: (laughs) And I, I tell you, I think about that a lot because in our world, especially the last few years, it just seems like there's been so much stuff that has been just out of control and spinning out of orbit. And to be able to look at that and say, you know what, in the midst of all this madness, my God reigns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can find hope in that and comfort in that and peace in that. How does that hit you?
2: It washes over me in, in a beautiful way with peace. And I think I'm changing how I view mountains. Can they remind us of all the places in Scripture where God met with humankind and provided for them? And can we remember these truths? And can these realities of promises and provision shape our days as we walk where we're walking, and whatever mm-hmm. we're facing?
3: Yeah, providing high ground of perspective, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, that's really what I think strikes me as I think about how many times in my life I've been in frustrating circumstances and God has allowed me to be close enough to a mountain to hike to the top and sit there for a while mm-hmm. and how it gives a different perspective on the world, on my problems, mm-hmm. on the problems that are in the world <laughs> that I'm struggling with mm-hmm. or that I feel the pressure of. It almost gives us those small windows of what God looks through Mm -hmm. as He looks down and sees us and, uh, of course, through the lens of love and care for us.
4: And the whole time you're hiking and climbing on that mountain, that mountain feels like an obstacle. (laughs) But when you get to the top and you get a different point of view that is much closer, I think, in some ways to God's point of view as we've been seeing through this week, I think it enables us to process life in a way that's much better and much healthier and much more pleasing to our Father.
0: And that wraps up part one of our series, The Gospel in the Mountains, here on the Discover the Word podcast. Your study partners are Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And like Bill said earlier, it's amazing, isn't it, just how many important biblical events took place on mountains. Be sure to listen to our next podcast when we'll look at five more notable mountaintop moments in Scripture in part two of The Gospel in the Mountains. Discover the Word is about discovering the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible together with you. And these podcasts are made possible thanks to the voluntary support of friends like you. If you'd like to support this ministry, there are at least a couple of ways you can do that, either by giving a one-time donation or by giving an automatic monthly gift as a Discover the Word partner. It's easy to give when you go online to our discovertheword.org website and click the Donate button. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.